0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you, kid? We'll see if we can spoil that. <laughs> Today's subject of the church deals with conflict, and uh, to me, that was Psalm 133 straight off. Psalm 133, I realise, is something that you read on a probably a daily or at least a weekly basis. And you are therefore intimately familiar with all of it. I mean, the the British among you are, because it's the first mention of football in the Bible. And Aaron dribbled down his beard. (laughs) It's one of those psalms that we so readily push away, because we can't see why it would be important. It's important because it's a psalm of ascent. What happened was as the Jews were going up to Jerusalem, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they went upwards. And so all the Psalms of Ascent are about going nearer to God, discovering what God had for them. And here in Psalm 133, you've really firstly got living out the dream. You start with, behold... How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in, in unity. Let's just get the brethren clear. This isn't a load of men. It's men and women together. It's the uniting word in the Hebrew, not the dividing one. And good and pleasant it is. It's prefaced by the word behold. What behold means is very simple. Pin your ears back. Listen. Listen. This is going to be important, because it's good and pleasant. Not just good, but also pleasant. Normally when things are good, they're not pleasant. And when things are pleasant, they're not normally good. But Scripture's got the two united together. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. So this is a song that they sang as they were going upwards, to Jerusalem, going up the hill, as we did about three weeks ago. And when you're going up the hill to Jerusalem, they were singing the song, beautiful poetry, about living together in unity. Now, something is going to happen to us as a church, and you may think, oh no, not again. This is getting a little repetitious. Yes, it is, and so it should. Because something is going to happen in this church that is called change. And change is one of those things that God's people are very reluctant to embrace. We are much more comfortable with what we know than what we don't. So if you want to empty a church, it's really simple just tell people it's going to change. As soon as you say that, you're in trouble. Jonathan has been persistently telling us, things are going to change next year. So I'm trying to take a bit of the flack and join the chorus, things are going to change. Why is that so important? Because this, cha- this little church was a church plant, it was a satellite And it worked embracing another church on Sullivan's Island. Things are going to be entirely different from next year. Firstly, it's going to be hell on earth for Jonathan and Melissa. Because no longer is it someone else's problem, it is now going to be theirs. It's also going to change for us. Because you may notice us growing. That growth is going to be more significant and more important. And what is the big change that's going to be? Well, this is where I get into trouble. So we'll start off as we mean to continue. We're going to get into trouble because we are no longer going to be a little satellite church situated on Daniel Island serving a much wider constituency. We are going to be here for Daniel Island. And what that's going to mean is we are going to be the vehicle that God is going to pick up and take and use to his glory here on Daniel Island. We are going to be the means that God is going to address his people with here and those who are not his people with here. This is going to be where people are going to start to meet Jesus from what they hear and discover, either directly from here or indirectly from here. In other words, life's going to get blooming exciting next year because our role changes and our emphasis is not going to be on survival or continuation. It's going to be on transformation, on changing society, changing this world and truly making a difference you may say, prove that. Well, if you give me all day, then I'll take you through scripture and show it. But what you've got in, behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity, it's you've got the start of what happens when God is gonna bring transformation. When God intends to change a society and a people, he starts by getting his people a praying. That's nicked from Matthew Henry in the 17th century. And it's so true. But the other thing is, when God wants to demonstrate who he is and what he's doing, you're going to have to look and see God bringing his people together. Because when God brings his people together, then something is going to be starting. And it all starts when we come together. It's so simple and straightforward. When God intends great mercy for his people, he gets them praying. But when God really wants to come and move among people, he brings people together. So how do you know that God's on the move? Because his people come together. When God intends great mercy, it's not that we get our doctrine right, it's that we get our relationships right. And when we get our relationships right, there's something magnetic that draws people together to us and to Jesus. It is so exciting, and it's so straightforward, and it is so biblical, it is so right, and you're living on the cusp of what's going to happen. Behold how good and pleasant it is. It's all just round the corner. Are you still there? Yeah. Not left yet? good because secondly once you've talked about living out the dream you've got to talk about living under the anointing this is not something that we manufacture it's something that God does now how many of you are English (laughs) thank you you're going to understand this completely how many of you are American this is going to be talking in another language So I want you to forgive me because it's not meant to be aimed at all at the people who greeted us today. This is aimed at English or British church greeters because this is their way of doing things. You arrive at the door on a Sunday morning and somebody offers their hand to you and they start with, Good morning, how are you? I'm fine. And has the wife? She's fine. And how are the children? Fine. And how's your spiritual life, my son? Fine. (laughs) Now let me give you the real story. How are you? Blummin' awful. How's the wife? That's why I'm so blummin' awful. (laughs) Nag, 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 she won't stop. And how are the children? Screaming half the night. That's why the wife's in such a mood. She never gets any sleep. And how's your spiritual life? Well, what do you think it's like? (coughs) And how's your job going? Well, if you really cared, you'd know that half the factory were made redundant last week and I was one of them. It's fine. And the tragedy is that we lose the honesty and we lose the openness and we lose the reality. How are you with that lot going on? How on earth do you think I am? I'm fine. And it's a dreadful indictment of us as church that we need the honesty and the openness to say how things are. How are you? Sick. How's the family? Well, one died last week. You know, the, the reality that we have to face, which is life. And living under the anointing, you're living under the oil of God's Spirit. Because as God's Spirit comes upon us, he doesn't just come upon us in the good times, but the bad times as well. This is one of the difficulty with listening to the God channel uh, on either radio or television because it's all about a God who wants to bless you. Really? Show me. Scripture is all about God making you a blessing, not God blessing you. And where God does bless you, he blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. Because God is not after a little handful of people gathered together on Daniel Island. God is after taking that little handful of people gathered on Daniel Island and making it such a blessing that the whole community gets to feel it, gets to recognize it, gets to see it. Because God wants to bless his people that we might be a blessing that we might be a transforming blessing, that we might be the means that he uses to touch and transform the lives of all around us. Because God is not a God who wishes to be exclusive in reaching out his hand of power. God wishes to reach out and to touch and communicate his grace and love all over the place. And that's what happens with the anointing. You see, the problem is we've got God into nice orderly little boxes that this anointing comes down, and it's a nice, clean, happy occasion. Can you imagine oil getting tipped over Aaron? The oil dribbles all over the place. You can't stop it. And the reality of this is it's a very messy business. The blessing of God is not clean, orderly, and sophisticated. The blessing of God is wild, disorderly, and goes all over the place which is exactly what God wants to do. He wants to come and pour his blessing on the rich and the poor, on the healthy and the unhealthy, on the stupid and the wise. He wants to come and bring his blessing. And if you're living under the anointing, you've got those occasions in Scripture when Jesus is anointed with oil. I want you to recognize that the oil is always costly that it's always refreshing, it makes a difference, that it always brings true life, that it always accompanies harmony and coming together. It happens on Mount Zion, which is God's resting place. It comes to provide a different place for God's habitation, and it's designed to create a family. That's what God wants to do when he sends the blessing down. He wants to make a new family of people who are on fire with the love of God and change their world. You are allowed to say, Amen. Amen. Now, the third part of this is that we're therefore living for the blessing. It's not enough to have just what we've got, but we want the blessing of God to come that it might be poured out through us. And touch a very needy world. That something might happen to this world where God has put us. That something might happen to this community. That people start to track back to the existence of a living God and what He is choosing to come and do. And we're not designed, as Nick works away here faithfully every Sunday, trying to keep things happening. That's not important. In and of itself, it's what God does through the fact that this church is running decently and in order and happens that is really important. And it's not Nick doing that and that's the end in itself, it's what God builds out from it. And the reality is that we look at us and we think, What good are we? You wait. It's not what good are you. It's what good are you in the hands of a living God. What can God come and do that will rock the boat? What will God come and do that will make a difference? What will God come and do that will change everything? Now that demands a story. So I'm going to tell you a story, but it's a difficult one. So you're going to have to listen very carefully and uh, work this one out. I want to take you to Israel. I want to take you to Israel three weeks ago, and I want to take you to my favorite place on earth. If you ask any of my four children, if mum ever died, what would happen to dad? And they would say, we'd have to go and find him. And the obvious question is, well, where would he have gone? And the answer is, to the cave. That's the cave. Where is it? That's Israel. The water out there is the Sea of Galilee. And the cave is really, 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 really important. Around the year 325 AD, Constantine was Roman emperor and his mother went on a trip to the Holy Land. She was a believer. And when the Empress Helena went to the Holy Land, she took with her her bishop, Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea. And everywhere, Bishop Eusebius showed her the living evidence of a story of Jesus. She would say, where did it happen? And he said, here. And so she put a church up. That's why if you go to Israel, you'll get sick to the back teeth of all the churches you have to go and see. Because everywhere something is supposed to have happened, there is now a church. Right? You're still there. Let's go fast forward 60 years to 385 AD. And another lady, this one is a little Roman Catholic nun named Agaria. And Agaria went looking around Israel and looking at lots of churches. And she got to the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And she said, where did he preach it? And they said, there is the church that uh, that, uh, Helena put up 60 years ago. And Agaria said, but that's the one place he couldn't have preached it which is true, because that church is situated on the mount exactly where, when the wind blows in the afternoon, you can't hear a word, because the wind blows it away. So Egeria was a bit confused. She said, well, if he didn't preach it where the church is now, where did he preach it? And she went looking for the remains of the old church that had been planted there in the time of Jesus, just after the resurrection. And the Christians who were still there said, well, where did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? Down there. Two-thirds of the way down the hillside. Looking out with his back to the mountain, Looking out over the Sea of Galilee. And so Agaria said, How do you know? They said, It's easy. It's the only place you can be heard. When the wind blows, you, it's, it's an acoustic marvel. You can just hear it. Everybody can hear it. What's more, it's rock underneath. So you're not sitting on the plants, on the crops. And what's more, Not only is it rock, but it's also open. And so you've got this fabulous site, which is the logical place where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, but isn't where the church is. Sorry for those of you who've been to the church, which is beautiful. It's just not the right place. How do I know that so confidently? Because I've had party after party after party after party, that I've stuck on that hillside, and got some poor unsuspecting victim to play the part of Jesus and teach the Beatitudes, and no one can hear them unless they're in this one spot where everybody can hear clearly. Isn't that amazing? What makes it even more fun is how many of you have done Greek? Hands up. One two, three, good. Then you will all be able to tell me why this place where that cave is is called Eremos Heights. Because Eremos in Greek means a solitary place. I know we all think today it's an adjective. You know, he went to a solitary place to pray. A place where there's no people. Uh Uh-uh he went to a solitary place to pray, Eremos Heights. It's the name of somewhere. So having got that far, now we get to the fun bit. That cave is bang slap in the middle of Eremos Heights. In fact, it's directly underneath where Jesus would have stood to preach the Sermon on the Mount. The cave is 2,000 years old. It's where he used to go to pray. It's where my Jesus sat and watched the disciples trying to row across the lake. It's where he went to commune with his father. And it's the one place on earth that I want to be at any point in time. Now, all my kids know this. And what has happened is the kids have got older and have produced grandkids and the grandkids are now of an age when they're starting to say when is grandpa taking us to Israel he took all you when's he taking us and so my youngest son Gavin his wife said to me one day Clive you're getting old (laughs) we're not sure how long you're going to be able to do this so when are you going to take my kids to Israel and that happened this year, just three weeks ago. And so they wanted to go to all the places they should go. How on earth, with my legs fused to my feet, do I manage to get up Eremos Heights, which is about that incline, and is all scree? And Gavin said, my youngest son said, I'll get you up there, Dad. Between us, we got up there. We got up to the cave. And I was able to teach my kids, my grandkids in the cave, about my Jesus. However, it's one thing getting up, (laughs) you then have to come down. And down is full of barbed wire, it's full of thorns, it's full of rocks. And we started trying to get down and Gavin was hanging on to his father. And we got down about 60, 70 feet. And then I lost it, because it was just too steep. It wasn't like it used to be. When I was young, it was different. It has now changed. And so I start running without any intention of so doing down this mountain. And Gavin is hanging on to his dad like grim death. And then he lost me. And he landed in the bushes on his left. And I landed on the rocks on the right. And... Not much more to say. Ruth says, she, I, I saw you go down and I thought I'd never see you again. Because it was such a fall. And that's the last I knew, because as I went down, I managed to twist my body and I landed on my back. And so, I'm lying there on my back on Eremos Heights, looking upwards, when the guy arrives. And this guy arrives. Now, I'm a lightweight, as you can see. (laughs) I mean, any of you here could come and take me on quite easily, individually. This guy comes up to me, picks me up in his arms, cradles me, and starts down the hill. Now, I do not know how he did that, nor do I know where he came from, because I know Eremos Heights and I've known it for over 30 years, 40 years. And you just don't have people wandering around on Eremos Heights, no one knows about it. And this guy came out of nowhere and he gets me down the hill to a level place and he lays me down. And then he disappears, don't know where he went. But he comes back a few minutes later with first aid gear. Patches me up. Says goodbye and off he goes again. A few minutes later he's back. This time he's got food and drink. And Then he disappears and I never saw him again. Now, firstly, I, I said to him, where are you coming from? And he said, I saw you from the road. You can't. I've been up and down that road dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You cannot see up Aramos Heights from the road. You can see the cave entrance, but you can't see where I was at all. That's just not possible. The second thing that was kind of amazing about it was you don't have people wandering around there, so he wasn't wandering up and down the hillside. And the third thing is, if you saw me from the road, it takes 20 minutes plus to get up there. And that's if you're really fit like Chris, and you can just run up mountains. (laughs) And if you can't, you don't get up there in a few short minutes. So where did this guy in world come from? No idea. Each time, no idea. But after the last time, he sent up a little crew of people who managed to get me down. And within a few short hours, I was recovering. But it was really, really nasty. I got concussion, inevitably, two or three days later. But it was a very, very nasty fall. Worst I've ever had. But the thing to me was, God sent reinforcements. Now, I'm not going to try and explain that to you. I'm not going to explain whether the Lord murmured in the ears of one of his servants, you need to go on to Eramos Heights, I've got a, a son there who needs help. I'm not going to argue that it was an angel who suddenly appeared, but it's certainly one of the logical explanations that occurred to the others who were there, um, and certainly been my preferred choice. And it was just an incredible moment. So why am I telling you? I'm telling you because firstly, it's good and precious when brethren dwell together in unity, when something important needs to happen, and something important needs to happen in this church, through this church, over the months ahead. The second thing is, when God is going to send his blessing, and his Holy Spirit is going to come and fall on a church, it needs believers open for everything that he wants to do, and open to be part of the answer, and not part of the problem, and ready for him to come, And use them. And the third thing is, it needs people who aren't going to tie God into a box, who are only being able to do what we understand and know and can appreciate. We need God to be ready to do what God wants to do in the way God wants to do it and how he wants to do it. I need to tell you that when Ruth and I came into this church, we almost immediately received help. We almost immediately received support from a number of you who I won't embarrass But that help and support is exactly what happens when brethren dwell together in unity. And when brethren dwell together in unity, they get the way ready for what the living God is going to come and do. And that is way above anything that you've thought of. And the important thing about all of this is that as you look up, God comes down. You get the word down three times in that psalm. God comes down when you look up. Brothers and sisters, we need to be looking up in the months that lie ahead for the God who comes down. Brothers and sisters, we need to be ready for God to come and work in ways that are beyond what we could imagine, beyond what we could expect, beyond what we are ready for. And we need to be open for all that the living God wants to come and do through us, in our community, in our world, that we may discover that when God takes angels unawares and comes and does things beyond our imaginings, it's because he wants to bring glory to his name, not yours. But he wants to bring glory to his name, that the world may turn and acknowledge who he really is. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, the largest mountain in Israel, which falls on the mountain of Zion, a little hill. And There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Could you not believe that God has something in his heart and mind for Daniel Island. And God's got something in his heart and mind for this little church. And you and I just might live to be part of it. Amen.